when you're a young, nervous civilization about to send out its first deep space probe, you want to make sure whoever finds it is going to want to be your friend. And the best way to do that is to send a mixtape. Earth's Mixtape is the podcast where we dive into the contents of the Voyager Golden Record. One song at a time, one picture at a time, one whale song at a time. Welcome back to Earth's Mixtape. This is the podcast where we review the contents of the Voyager Golden Record. I'm Mike Dunlavy, and with me as always is... Roby Austin. And... Hannah Ayler. This episode will be discussing musical selections from India and the U.S., as well as photos showing modern, i.e. 1970s, technology in the Golden Record Photo Archive. So let's begin. talking about track 25 from the music of earth track 25 is entitled jat kahan ho by sershi kesar by kirkar apologies for the pronunciation it runs three minutes and 30 seconds and it is an example of an indian raga you want to tell us more about what makes it a raga what i have down is a raga means something akin to color or mood or passion. So it's a, a song about feeling. This piece features Kakar singing over a band composed of sitar, drum, and drone. And the drum is played in a 14-4 rhythm. Can someone explain to a non-musical person what that would mean? It means that every 14th beat is a strong beat. The basic rhythm repeat unit is 14 beats long. And the choice of four as the as the denominator in that uh, description just tells us that the the basic unit of beat is a quarter note. And I'm looking at Hannah to see if she wants to... So one measure is going to be 14 quarter notes long. That's a lot of quarter notes. It's a lot of quarter notes. It's two... It's, there's a lot of ways to arrange 14 quarter notes you can have. Two, three whole notes and <laughs> two quarter notes. That would be... Four times three plus two is is still coming out to fourteen, even in my head. So this sort of long, you know, fourteen four instead of what I would normally hear is like three four time or four or four, four, four time. time. Yeah. yeah, like I I feel this piece of music has very sort of long passages, long sustained notes. Um, does that is that in keeping with that kind of time? If it's if it's a strong note every fourteen. I'm not sure. I'm, I am most definitely not a composer. So if you are a composer and you know about this stuff, please do get in touch with us to sort us out. But I think that a reason for going for 14-4 would be to have a lot of flexibility in the phrasing. So 4-4 four, four time, basically you usually hear 1-2-3-4. And 3-4 time you usually hear 1-2-3-1-2-3-1-2-3. But if you had, say, five, four time, it could go one, two, one, two, three. You could group that five into a two and a three, or you could group it into a three and a two. And with 14, holy smokes, there's a lot of combinations, which I am not going to list. I promise no matter how (laughs) boring (laughs) I would like to be. Okay. Thank you. Uh, So this piece was sung, as we said, by Kassar by Kirkar, who had an honorific of Sershi, which was bestowed upon her by the president of India, and it translates as excellent voice. That's pretty exciting. My ignorance of Indian music uh, knows no bounds, uh, but apparently she was one of the best. Oh yeah, she was a big cheese. In a good way, not as in she was cheesy. Do do you have big cheese facts about... Um, uh, I do. 
Uh, she was like a child prodigy from the age of 16, basically, and became one of the most noted Hayal singers. So she actually had not the easiest time getting to be a big cheese, though. She wanted to study with different people, but they kept... Uh, they did not treat her very well uh, when she was younger, so she would leave them out of frustration and resentment. And then there's a story here about how her husband put her under the tutelage of another man. His name was Ustad Aliadia Khan, who was a master singer, and he was the founder of the Garana type of classical music. Um, so he's an even bigger cheese, but the challenges she had to go through to be his student were quite significant. She had to engage in a basically a contract with these five stipulations in order for him to take her on. This was his way of trying to persuade her to not be his student. This was to dissuade her from, from working with him, that she must study for 10 years with him and must be paid for, paid for 10 years whether or not she completed the 10 years and then basically had to pay him a whole bunch of money up front and then monthly fee as well, which was very expensive. And then he had she had to travel wherever he went, but at her own expense. So this was his way of saying, oh, sure, you can study with me, but you have to do all these things and give me all this money. But she still was not dissuaded, and she... She did it? She did it, and she slowly grew to fame. Within the 10 years or yeah, after the 10 years? Both, I think. Okay. The relationship lasted for many years, but I'm not... It didn't say how many on the website I was looking at. But then there was this weird fact. She worked very long hours and had to sing a lot and do a lot of things. Um, but as her final testament to her commitment to study with this guy, she had to refrain from all sexual activity with her husband until her tutelage was complete. Those are some fun facts, Hannah. <laughs> yep. I'm going to I'm gonna segue from that. Okay. Are you? You got, you got I one? I thought it was interesting like that. That's fascinating, especially since you started the story with her husband uh, yeah. put her under the tutelage of so the guy. Segue. Segue. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going to segue from that and talk about this particular piece. What the lyrics are about is it's about a mother asking her child not to go to the festival because she is too young and that the mother seems to be of the opinion that the kid is going anyway. That seems universal. A universal theme. Kids today. But, yeah. Kids back then. And interestingly, I feel that if this was a Western song dealing with such a situation, there would be comeuppance for the child. It would be a song meant to teach a lesson to the child that you shouldn't disobey your parent. Child gets flogged at the end of the song? Uh, sure. Yeah. Depends you, on the century it was written in, but sure. You, you're not convinced that having your mother be very disappointed in you well, so and sing beautifully and heart-rendingly with a three-piece orchestra about how incredibly disappointing and you are and how she just doesn't trust you. You don't think that's punishment? I don't know how passive aggression works in India. <laughs> I, I, I choose not to uh, extend my own cultural feelings on it. I'm sure them. passive aggression works just fine wherever it's tried. It's probably true. So they mentioned in Murmurs of Earth that this was one of their favorite transitions from the previous piece, which was the flowing streams. But I might argue that a better transition might have been going from that Peruvian wedding song about the little girl going to the festival she was too young to go to. Oh. So musically, maybe better coming from Flowing Streams, but subject-wise, it might have been... So also musically, this has a drone, and we've had that bagpipes piece a little while ago, which is also providing a drone, so Absolutely. that might have been an interesting way to make it work. Do we know... Also, the yeah. didgeridoo was yeah. sort of a yeah. drone under the Australian piece as well. Yeah. So I know what a bagpipe looks like, and I kind of know what a didgeridoo looks like. I mean, I guess I've seen them... What does a like? I've I have never seen a drone. I have seen somebody perform where they 
press the button on an electronic thing on stage, but... Yeah, I've only ever seen the electronic thing on stage that sits next to the sitar player, and they press it, and it makes that bagpipe-esque music. So if you can fill us in, audience, please send photographs of the, the instrument that makes the drone. We, you know, Feel free to start, dear ignorant people. <laughs> you are very foolish. This is what it looks like. This is... Roby doesn't read the email. Please start more politely than that. Uh, one last fact I have about this piece in, rela- in its relationship to the Golden Record is that this was recommended for the record by Robert E. Brown, who, if you've been paying very close attention, was also the fellow who recommended the Gamelan from Java that we talked about probably way back in an episode two or so. So is he their world classical music expert? Is that he's one of them? I mean, Lomax was also their, but not classical music. Maybe the like the art tradition versus folk tradition. Apparently, he's the one who coined the term world music. Oh. Not the most. That's not an amazing coinage, is it? But you, that's a phrase that's used by many people. I guess so. And it tends to mean non-Western music. Yes. Fun fact, also, he had a band during college called Bobby Brown and his Swingsters. Swingster music. <laughs> yes. Bobby Brown. No, so not the, the Whitney Houston Bobby Brown. No, the Robert E. Brown. Okay. The ethnomusicologist. Yeah, Bob E. Brown. Bobby. Not Bobby. <laughs> Uh, did we get her dates? So she was born in 1893. So this is a very old recording. It sounds like an old recording. I don't know when the recording she was made. She died in 1977. Oh, as her voice a was month being... after the Voyager was the launched. The excitement was too much. We're now going to start talking about the next section of photos. We're going to be talking about photos 96 through 108 in a block of photos we're titling Modern Technology. We're going to start with photo 96, entitled Artisan with Drill. This is a photo by Frank Hewlett from the book Gem Cutting by John Sinkenkas. And it shows Bill St. John of the Whittier Gem and Mineral Society working with what looks like a very precise gem-intended drill press. And so after the last few photos where we were looking at craftsmen and folks doing things with hand tools, we now see someone doing things with machinery. It's definitely machinery from what I see. I I don't know if I could necessarily tell something manufactured from something natural if I didn't live on Earth, but that's okay. Yeah, and there is a, there's still the technological procession. I mean, we we titled this block of photos modern technology. I mean, an OSP probably couldn't tell maybe couldn't tell the difference between a hammer and a chisel and a motorized drill press, but in terms of what's primitive and what's modern, but it is the next progression. Sure. My argument was that they couldn't tell the difference between a hammer, a chisel, and like a crystal formation. But right. That's okay. I've already banged that drum too many times. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think he's got a nice plaid shirt on. He does have a nice plaid shirt on. Looks like a pleasant old man. It's a decent <laughs> All picture. Right. But yeah, if, if they were going for being totally clear on what he was doing, it's it's not. But well, Bill St. John of the Whittier Gem and Mineral Society, you're a pleasant old man. <laughs> Which is going to take us to picture 97, entitled Factory Interior. This was a photo that was sent in color, for reasons I'm not entirely sure. And it was taken by Fred Ward. And it shows many workers on a factory floor making things as a group. Uh, so it's, a, it's you know, the next step, I guess, in, in the Industrial Revolution. We have a lot of people working together on something. I'm not entirely sure that's immediately obvious from this photo. No, but it 
it is mass production. Like it's a bunch of people doing the same thing. It's they may all be working together on a big project, but they're all working on the same machine. There's yes. many copies of the same machine. I'm not entirely sure why it's sent in color. Yeah, I don't think that's helpful at all. So there are a couple of, there's at least two points where you can see flame, where you can see either they're welding or they're doing something in the color version of the photo. So you could argue that they're sending similar information to what they sent in the photo of the fireplace, but I'm not entirely sure that that is uh, worthwhile. I'm not buying it. And they don't really look like flames. They look like little suns. Yeah. Which I guess reduces the threat to humanity scale. We manufacture we stars. Yeah. Yes. Our, 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 our lowly craftspeople wield stars in their hands. <laughs> Moving on to picture 98, entitled Museum. There's, I couldn't find a photo credit for this picture, but what we see are oh, people. Oh, David Cup. Oh, David Cup. Thank you. What we see in this photo are people looking at bones of animals while behind them is a mural of the animals that they are looking at. I assume this is from some museum of natural history somewhere. Okay, this is not a clear picture. Not at all. It, it looks like the people are very far away. And it's got a big black band in the middle of it yeah. of just wasted space. It's not, it's not great. I feel a better picture could have been taken. I don't think that if you'd shown this to me and not told me it was a museum photo, I could have told you. I don't think I could have figured out what it was. And I'm not, I don't understand why we're sending pictures of bones... Well, We've so, already sent the anatomy. We've already sent the this and the, the that. Well, they did make reference. They talk about in Murmurs of Earth that the, they should be, anyone looking at these should be able to tie these bones back to those anatomy pictures. What? No. But <laughs> why would, like, what are they to get from that? Yeah. We already have established we're full of bones. But I think this is more of us showing off that, oh, look at us. We know so much about the world around us and and we're interested in it yeah and we put it into there could be two buildings and look at it for fun yeah which isn't a terrible like it's not terrible to celebrate culture and Mm -hmm. interest in history but this is a very odd representation of that uh, curiosity you could even argue that this is very ritualistic we've killed the beast we've gathered its bones and now we are doing some sort of ceremony with them in front of depictions of its living being. Yeah. It's not entirely clear that it's a depiction of its, like there's no, there's no frame or anything of the picture in the background. So you, it could be that they're standing in front of a bunch of, oh, I don't know what those are, stegosauruses. Maybe. There's an armadillo. They're standing, that's right, there's a saber-toothed tiger. They're standing in front of, front of a bunch of animals. Like it just, anyway, rah, I think it's unclear. Anyway, we've had a good run of positivity, so I think we were due a uh, questioning, uh, which leads us into picture 99, which is entitled X-Ray of Hand by our old friend Herman Eckelman of the NAIC. He was the NAIC photographer and a buddy of Sagan and Drake and co. And so this photo was taken explicitly for the record, and it shows radiology technician Teresa Sima at the Tompkins County Hospital with a X-Ray of a hand up on a light box, holding up her own hand next to it. There's actually two x-rays of hands up there. There are two x-rays. So I think this is a pretty good picture showing that we can take pictures of bones. It may not be the only interpretation of this picture, but it's, it is a good picture showing that we have x-ray technology. Yes. I the, agree. The, the, only, the only thing I would say about this photo is why, not, why didn't they just frame it for the hand 
Yeah. But then again, then again you, I guess this is obviously a hand attached to a human. Yeah. I kind of would like the picture as a picture better if her thumb were all over the light box the way the rest mm. of her hand is. I mean, I know that's fussiness, but it, yeah. it, it's a little unclear because her thumb falls off yep. the edge. But good They picture. were in a hurry. Yeah, fine picture. Moving on to picture 100. We've now hit the century mark on our photos. Mm. Nice, thank you. Picture 100 is entitled Woman with Microscope. And this is from the United Nations. And it shows a woman in a lab coat looking into a microscope with the purpose of doing science. As we hope, as they hope they've established in previous photos, the eyes are the organs of vision. So they feel that this should be very clearly a picture of somebody looking into something and that what this woman is using is a scientific instrument. Well, I certainly think it's fair that it's a picture of somebody looking into something. I, I have no idea how to interpret the whether or not it's a scientific instrument because I live amongst scientific instruments and yeah. so I respond to all of the cues. Oh, look, she's in a lab coat. <laughs> Science is happening. Therefore, she's a scientist, yes. But a perfectly fine photo. It's a nice picture. It's another picture of somebody wearing earrings. Which Yes, which they actually make comment of in Murmurs of Earth, kind of jokingly, that they hope that the OSPs would realize those were decorative and not some sort of communication device. Oh, well, that just shows how, how stuck in 1977 they were, because uh, it easily could be a communication device in it could 2017. Be, it could be a Bluetooth, yeah. We're now going to move on to picture 101, which is entitled Street Scene in Pakistan. And this is a photo from the United Nations, and it shows a large variety of types of vehicles with people on them, in them, around them. And yeah, so you can see a car, you can see three-wheeled taxis, you can see horse and buggy, you can see bicycles. Uh, I think this is a very good photo. I think this this shows a lot of variety. Yeah, I like that they have all the different modes of transportation all in one photo. It's not often that you see pictures with cars and horse and buggy in the same picture, plus bicycles. And I didn't even know three-wheeled taxis were a thing. I'm going to edit this out if I'm wrong. I believe they're called tuk-tuks. <laughs> I have one worry about these pictures. It's all three of them. But we've never established that these are uh, modes of transportation. There's no reason to believe that they're in motion. I was going to raise that point when we got to the third photo. Sorry. But, but yes. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so there is, the, there is an animal attached to a cart, which I think could be considered that that is a, a thing that is moving because it's, it's got legs and we've established things with legs, use them for locomotion. And therefore, if it's moving, if it's, if it's a thing that is moving, it, the things it is among would also be moving. But Yeah, that's a good point. They do stay in Murmurs of Earth. This picture, quote, this picture makes clear that the advanced and the primitive exist at the same time, unquote. Primitive. Hmm. Advanced. Hmm. <laughs> so I, I, I don't think that that's a legitimate yeah. statement. Which takes us on to picture 102, which is entitled Street Scene, which is uh, now showing Rush Hour in India. And it says that the photo is by Herman Eckelman, but I will say that I'm slightly suspicious of the photo credits for the next few. I'm going to list them as Murmurs of Earth Gizm, but I'm a little suspicious for reasons I'll get into later. The website calls this, says this one's from the UN. Okay, that I believe more. I, 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 think, there, I think in Murmurs of Earth they, they got sort of mixed up in this area of what the photo credits were. But I do believe that, more likely believe that this is a photo from the UN. And it shows basically a highway with a bunch of cars moving in one direction with a bicycle moped lane. 
Bumper-to-bumper traffic. So probably not moving. Probably not moving. Towards a bridge. Not moving as the people um, in the cars would probably like. I think this one breaks a no-bummer rule. Like, being (laughs) stuck in rush hour traffic sucks. Especially in India, but it's way worse. I I agree. And the Murmurs of Earth caption says one of the things this shows is it shows vehicles moving in different directions. But Mm. I think all of these cars are pointed off into the photo. I don't see... I don't see the opposing lane. It's a long pause. We long also pause. have not established how cars move either. We so also have not established that's how cars irrelevant. Move. That's true. But we're going to move on from that to picture 103, which is entitled Highway, which I have down as by Herman Eckelman, and uh, stating that this is uh, taken on Route 13 near Ithaca, New York. It's just a dual carriage highway. It's divided. Divided highway. We see a couple cars, and we see a logging truck filled up with logs and they were hoping that this would establish we use roads and vehicles for long-term transport the logging truck appears to have something in front of it does it also show that roads are frequent sites of uh, wildlife slaughter uh, i <laughs> i can't make out what that is i'm going to assume it's an artifact and okay. nothing untoward because it would be a bummer it would be to send a roadkill picture out into space. Super bummer. And, you know, coming from the last two pictures, which basically show bumper-to-bumper traffic, this could be interpreted as almost a deserted, destitute place where nobody or would want to travel. Or that cars are going extinct, maybe. Oh, well, that would be nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, this picture does have both-way traffic. Picture, it's just India? that in India they drive on the left, yep. so the far right is traffic coming our way, but it's, it's much lighter. Oh, so okay. it's away from us is heavy, heavy bumper-to-bumper, and towards us is much lighter traffic. Okay. Glad we cleared that one up. Good that we cleared that one up. We're going to move on now to picture 104, which is entitled Golden Gate Bridge from Baker's Beach. And this is a photo by Ansel Adams, taken in 1953. It shows a suspension bridge, the famous Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, and it also includes a superimposed length scale showing... Length scale. Showing the distance between the suspension towers as being 1,280 meters. It's a perfectly fine photo, and I think a suspension bridge is a nice bit of structure, good physics-based structure to show. Yeah, you've got some waves on the beach shore there, which is a nice touch. Yeah. Sky looks pretty. Yeah, it's a nice, it's a very Ansel Adams-y picture, nice silvers. Got no complaints. Got no complaints. This one passes muster. So that's going to take us to picture 105, which is entitled Train. And I have this photo as being taken by Frank Drake. So I assume this is explicitly for the golden record. I have that one as Gordon Gahan on the NASA website. Okay. Either by Frank Drake or Gordon Gahan. And it shows a train on the Boston-Washington line. And there's also, again, a superimposed length scale for which I assume is the length of one of the rail cars, which is given as 12 meters. And they also say there is a face visible in the window. I have yet to see it. And I think in black and white, it would be almost impossible. It is definitely impossible. You can just see the driver. It is impossible. I mean, you have to do the thing of knowing that there's a face there and look. So we're now going on to picture 106, which I think may clear up some of these photo credits. I have this as titled Airplane Flight. And the inset on the photo says this is by Gordon Kahan of the National Geographic Society. But in the caption for the photo, it says it's by Frank Drake. NASA website says Frank Drake as well. Yeah, so I think that that Gordon Gahan credit on picture 106 in Murmurs of Earth should have been on picture 105. This picture by Frank Drake was taken at Syracuse Airport, and it shows a jet in the process of ascending after a recent takeoff. 
You can also see a couple planes in the foreground that are sitting on the on the ground there. Yeah, little Cessna-esque planes. I think this is a nice one to include, um, showing that we can fly and whatnot. I'm just really bummed that they don't have a length scale because there's nothing here that we already know the size of to indicate what what how big of a thing we're looking at. Excellent point. There's absolutely no reason to think that a person could fit inside that. Could just be a stone that we've thrown. Or a, yeah, or a toy. Or something in our blood. We don't know how big. Uh, good <laughs> Maybe point. Maybe we have many planes in our blood. Good point, Hannah. Um, I'm going to take this point to say that Maybe in the beginning of the photos, uh, you know, a hundred photos ago when we were establishing length scales and units and our nomenclatures, that it would have been worthwhile to establish what an arrow means, that an arrow could signify movement somehow, so that we could give these photos some sense of motion and yeah. what, what, the, what the things in the photo or photos are doing. Yeah, it's true. Again, because we've only captured one instance of the plane in flight, it could just be hanging there. We, yeah. I'm just going to ask, Mike, how would you establish an arrow as movement? How would you set that up? I would do it very poorly as they established everything else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you remember the gymnast picture? It had time. So if you took multiple exposures with time passing and then put an arrow. Put an arrow on. That might be a way to do it. But, you know, given more than six months to think it through, you might come up with something that was robust. In the plane picture, I will say that it's got tarmac in it, which looks like the road in the picture a few ago in the highway, so you can see that there's a recurring theme. Yeah, if you examine closely, you could even see the wheels on the Cessnas. Mm, Yeah. But we're going to move on now to picture 107, which is entitled Airport, taken from Lawson Graphics Pacific Limited, and I'm going to ask Roby if she can recognize the airport. (laughs) I was just wondering if it was Toronto. It is Toronto International Airport. And so you see a terminal building with various extensions from the gates, and a couple of airliners waiting to either board or deboard passengers. Okay, but it's Toronto in like 1977 at the very latest, right? So sure. obviously it's not what Toronto Airport looks like now. It's yep. what it looked like in its terrible, terrible past. That roof definitely needs replacing <laughs> on that terminal building. <laughs> and oh, and it was crowded and stuffy and it had those stupid ceilings. Anyway. You would have flown to Toronto Airport in 1977. 1977. Holy smokes. You could be in this photo somewhere as a, little tiny, as a little tiny Roby. Oh, no, this is, uh, this is too personal. Back <laughs> off, back off. Uh, I want to criticize others, not think of myself in the pictures. Uh, and so, you know, we see where airplanes live. That thing that we saw in the previous photo, we now see them on the ground and the infrastructure required for them. And do we see people to give you a sense of size anywhere? Come on, not obviously. a person? Not obviously. Do I see anyone? I'm sure there's a grounds crew person somewhere, but I think the photo is far too high. It's a photo on like a three-quarters downward view of the terminal. From and the it's sky. almost the entire building, so it's quite a lot of space. Yeah. Well, this is going to take us to the final photo we're going to talk about today. This is picture 108, which is entitled Antarctic Snowcat. This is a photo taken from the National Geographic Society from Sir Vivian Fuchs' Antarctic Expedition in 1958. And what it shows is a a snowcat, a truck with heavy treads straddling a very scary-looking ice chasm with the treads very precariously placed as if it is about to fall into the huge abyss. It is a picture of a conundrum. How do you get out of that situation? And there are people filing out the back of this vehicle. Which suggests that that's how you get out. You leave the the 
snow cat behind. It's yeah. got big caterpillar tread. Yeah, this one really sets off my danger radar. <laughs> it, it really does. Does it break your no bummer rule? Because it sort of breaks mine. Well, it doesn't for the people who wrote Murmurs of Earth, and we're going to talk about this. They wanted to show... They claimed what they wanted to do is show a photo of something obviously going wrong. What? I don't know how that was intended to be shown here, but they talk about how incredibly funny they found this photo. What? This photo made them laugh. And they say, this is the only deliberate humor in the picture portion of the record. What? Because <laughs> just look how, like, that thing okay. is about to fall into an abyss. That's, that's hilarious. Yeah, with people trying to escape it, that's, wow, comedy gold. And I, they did go on to say that nobody died in this picture, and they rescued this, they did rescue the snowcat with the help of another snowcat, but I really but questioned I didn't this. know that when I looked at the picture, and Yakety Sax wasn't playing, I, so I didn't know that it was all going to be okay. The more they looked at it, the funnier it seemed to them. And I just think that that has to say to me that at this point they were very tired. I'm, I, we all know that scene when you're, when you, as you say, you're exhausted. You, you're trying to get something really complex together in six months because of like amazing planning skills on your part, and you're, you're, you, you got all these uh, conflicting pressures, and you have also looked at. Every single photograph ever taken, approximately, that you possibly could in the last few months. And you come across this one, and yeah, you get the giggles. But you don't then write in your book about how this scene of almost catastrophe had you guys laughing uproariously, and we put it in as the only deliberate humor. That's not even true. Because let's not forget the picture of the watering hole from a couple of dozen pictures back was a pun on some astronomical spectra analysis. The water hole, I remember now, yes. So anyway. A deliberate joke. Anyway, this is a weird photo. I don't think they should have put it on. So do these photos have a threat to humanity scale? It's a lot of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of bragging about our ability to fly and our reliance on roads, which you might interpret as, well, if we want to attack these people, the first thing we should do is take out to their airports and roads. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give it a mid five or six. Or you can just build chasms below their vehicles. If they can build chasms like that, then... They're quite active in Florida. Chasms? Uh, Making water holes, sinkholes. Oh, Okay. I mean, it's not the, the aliens. Of, well, maybe it, it is. is. Well, uh, is it? <laughs> Based on they this. saw this and they are playing yakety sax and laughing and <laughs> laughing and laughing. We're going to finish today by talking about track 26 of The Music of Earth. Track 26 is entitled Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground by Blind Willie Johnson. It runs about 3 minutes and 15 seconds and was recorded on December 3rd, 1927. Okay, the bummer rule. It didn't apply to music. This is the blues. And it's not the only blues on the record. Yeah. We already had one called Melancholy Blues. We did. I don't think it's that sad a piece, though. Like, It's just nice and chill. It, it's the blues, Hannah. It doesn't make me sad. Well, it should make your sadness, uh, you know, yeah. channel into the oh wow, I'm I'm not as sad anymore because exactly. it's I've shared my, so, yeah, my but, blues. With but that's what the blues music. is. The blues isn't there to make you sad. Right. The blues is there to share sadness so and find solace and such. So it's Spread not totally around. bummer. You're you're getting something positive out of it. Okay, fair okay. enough. So this song was the title. Dark was the night, cold was the ground. Is based on an old 1790 hymn 
written by Thomas Howes called Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground. It should be noted that in this song by Blind Willie Johnson, there are no lyrics. It is him playing a bottleneck slide guitar and giving some soulful mo- mo- moaning. There's some good oohs and ahs and ums. So he was playing slide guitar, what's called the bottleneck slide guitar, but he wasn't using a bottleneck to do the slide. What was he using, Hannah? He was using a knife, because he's a badass. He certainly was. So do you know how he attached the knife? I was trying to think about that, but then I thought maybe he just had a knife instead of fingers. (laughs) But that's Uh, probably not the case. I don't think so. (laughs) Because, I I mean, like, sure, he was blind, but if you had knife hand, maybe that's why he was blind. It's Blind Willie Johnson, not Blind Willie Scissorhands. Johnson himself was born in Marlin, Texas, and lived a life which could only be described as a blues song in and of itself. He was blinded by his mother at the age of seven. His mother threw some lie in his face during a family dispute. This is so depressing. And died of pneumonia after his house had burnt down. So his house had burnt down. According to his wife, they couldn't get him into the hospital because the hospitals weren't accepting blind people. So they were sleeping in their damp bed. He had contracted pneumonia and died. This is so terrible. This is not great, but his music lives on. He recorded over 30 songs around the time that he recorded this. And yeah, his music is now in the stars. So I read two other theories about why he became, how he became blind, one of which was that he wore the wrong spectacles, and the other of which uh, was that he had viewed a partial solar eclipse, neither of which I believe can actually make you blind. You'd have to really stare at the eclipse for a while, but it could do it. I mean, if you stared at the sun, you would eventually go blind. Hence all the pirates with eye patches. No, pirates and eye patches are so that you can see below deck. You have one eye that's always acclimated to the dark, so when you go beneath deck where it's dark, you just flip that open, and this eye already has night vision, so it can see. And now an Earth's mixtape <laughs> tangent. What the heck are you talking about, what? Hannah? Yeah, because they're using sextants. Where does this information And looking at the from? height of the sun. What? Explain yourself, young lady. <laughs> we don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> that's, no, that's, that's true. It's, it, yeah. But what about using a sextant and looking up at the sun? To figure out what, where, I mean, you're using a sextant, uh, using the angle of the sun to figure out your, uh, the time of day to figure out where you are. Sure, but I don't think you do that enough to make you blind. I think you have to look at the sun for a pretty long time to be blind. Like, yeah. your eyes have... Okay, so, so we, they, we all agree wearing the wrong spectacles aren't uh, going to make you it's, blind. Yeah, it's going to, A, it's oh. going to upset your eyes, and B, you're going to take them off. And, but maybe he was wearing the wrong spectacles while looking at the sun. Oh, and was somebody actually, was pouring lye on him? <laughs> There actually was a theory that combined the two of them. Okay. So, who knows? Well, apparently, this is an open question. But I believe that the lie one is the prevailing. uh, I I saw the lie explanation in a couple places. All right, tangent over. He was given his first instrument at the age of five by his father, which was a cigar box guitar, which is uh, a cigar box for the body of the guitar and a broomstick for the handle. That sounds amazing. Everything about this guy just sounds like... A blues musician bio movie, like biopic. Yeah, he's the exemplar. So he was Linnaeus a- has put blues man and taken his form. He did a put- lot of gospel music as well, and he was a preacher in addition to being a musician. Well, I mean, this is basically gospel. The, gospel blues. The whole lyrics from, like, from the hymn that he took this from or was inspired by it was, Dark was the night, cold was the ground on which my Lord was laid. Mine was the debt, mine was the crime for which my Savior paid. And it's basically several more verses of, um, I can't believe someone died for my sins, I am not worthy. 
So I read online the Carl Sagan's reason for including this piece. Oh. Um, I'll just read the quote. Uh, Johnson's song concerns a situation he faced many times, nightfall with no place to sleep. Since humans appeared on Earth, the shroud of night has yet to fall without touching a man or woman in the same plight. Which kind of sounds like a bummer. Which kind of sounds like a bummer. And I think we talked about a few episodes ago how after they chose all the music, they noticed there were four or five pieces that were all about the night mm-hmm. or mentioned the night, the, the Navajo night chant. Which the, kind of makes sense if you're sending a piece... Or if you're sending something into space, you're imagining sending it into a dark void. So I think subconsciously that would be in your mind. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting observation to see after the fact. Well, and plus, I mean, we're diurnal creatures, but half of the time is night, roughly. Yes, as those pictures of the UN building showed. Yeah, (laughs) like night is a, a big part of the time that we spend on Earth, so... So if only four songs are about night out of 27, you feel this isn't a good representation for night. Night's not getting its fair due. I think jazz and blues songs are great to imagine echoing through the hallways of an alien spaceship. And I don't think that this one is any exception. I think uh, to hear this blues song through an alien corridor would be would be pretty good. I hate to step on your, your segment, but... This would not be a thing I would want. To, like, if I woke up on a UFO and this was playing down the down the hallway, I would find that eerie. I wouldn't find it eerie. I would just expect that I was about to spend the next, you know, rest of my life in solitary. <laughs> this isn't the first one that you what's said your, that. About. What's your definition of eerie? <laughs> uh, well, that's more depressing than eerie. Like, I, I, I don't feel as though it's otherworldly. Oh, eerie to me should give me okay. like a chill down my a spine. Whereas this is like, oh. Things like, are bad. Willie Johnson has his oohs and his ahs and his ums in here. He doesn't actually say any words, so I think this is a piece you can, like, imagine an old alien man sitting there humming along to, because you don't have to speak English. You just have to be able to go, mm, I, and I think I, they can do that. I feel your imagination is not running as wild as it would be if you were on a UFO. Many years ago, I took a course in popular music in university, and uh, one of the questions that I remember vividly getting wrong on one of the tests was, what does it mean when the singer stops singing words and starts saying, ooh, um, and the answer was, because they're going places, emotional places, to an emotional depth that words cannot express. And in this case, I really do feel as though he's, he's in, a, in a deep, deep blues state. You, you certainly can't accuse him of lazing out on writing lyrics because he based this on a hymn which had a full five verses that he could have uh, started singing. I still don't think it's that sad a <laughs> Well, song. I'm not going to try and convince you otherwise. And if you heard Jot Kahanho? I'd be a little bit more eerie out, I think. Okay. Um, it's kind of like a, got a minor sound to it or something. It's, it's, yeah, there's something, some eerie tone to Is it. Is dark was the night in a major tone? No, it's in a blues scale. If I... Uh, we're on a spaceship, constantly listening to the th- the thrumming drone of the engines. I would be glad to know that song so that I could sing it along with the the drone of the engine. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm, just good. saying. Thanks for listening to Earth's Mixtape. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes, and maybe we will read your name on a future episode. Reviews will help people find out about the podcast, and maybe tell your friends about us. Did we make a mistake or an omission? Heck yeah, we did. Let us know all about it on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Earth's Mixtape. Or email us at earthsmixtape at gmail.com. Earth's Mixtape is produced at St. Mary's University in beautiful Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada.